he had taken this big cauldron of soup out somewhere and he he put it out where he knew that the homeless people would be and he put it out there and then got back in his car and this um, homeless guy came up and, and saw the soup and saw the guy in the car and he knocked it over just threw it out in the street and he said to the guy you don't come in here and put out food like we're like we're dogs like put out food here to feed us mm. you know come here and talk to us mm. <laughs> Welcome to Deviate with Rolf Potts, where I talk with experts, public figures, and interesting people about fascinating topics that meander off topic. Today, Sophronia Scott comes back on the show to talk about her new book, The Seeker and the Monk, which explores the work of writer and mystic Thomas Merton. If you've read my book, Vagabonding, you'll know that I quote Thomas Merton a few times, most often from the journals he kept during his travels across Asia. But Thomas Merton wasn't really known as a travel writer or even as a traveler. He was just an uncommonly open-hearted seeker who eventually became a Trappist monk and wrote a number of influential books in the 1950s and 1960s. There's something deeply relatable about Merton's writing, a sense that God is not some grim anthropomorphic busybody so much as a metaphor for something fuller about the universe and our lives in it. My wife-to-be, Kiki, is actually a big fan of Merton and is more versed in his work than I am, so she joins in this conversation with Sophronia and me. Together we talk about the way certain books can capture our imagination at certain times in life. We talk about how Merton's work explores how to deal with desire in a world of abundance and how to seek silence in a world of noise. We talk about the balance between private spiritual life and the need to change our communities for the better. We talk about what it means to love your enemy at a time when our perceived enemies are often seen through the context-free lens of clickbait news items. We talk about how, despite his vows, Thomas Merton fell in love with a nurse when he was in his 50s and how this actually made his writing more human and resonant. We start with Kiki and Sophronia talking about how they first came to know of Thomas Merton and his work. Let's listen in. Kiki, how did you find, how did he first come on your radar? Um, I was reading a book that I can't remember the title of by Anne Lamott, and she said that the Merton prayer was one of the most important things for her spiritual practice. And she was pretty coy about it because she didn't say what the Merton prayer was. She said, look it up. So I did. And that's how he got on my radar. (laughs) And so Sophronia, you've actually written a book about Thomas Merton. How did he get on your radar? Well, when I was uh, in starting my MFA program, uh, I was at the Vermont College of Fine Arts. And one of the first lectures I heard was uh, a lecture by the writer Robert Vivian. And he quoted an extended passage from Merton's Conjectures of a Guilty Bystander. Now, I'd never heard of Merton, and I didn't know what this book was, but the words were just incredible to me. They just lit me up. I was like, oh my gosh. Like I felt like this guy touched something that, that it was like we both knew something and I wanted to know more about him. And so I went to our library to find this book and I ended up having to borrow it via interlibrary loan. So I had to wait for it. And then when it finally showed up and I'm looking for these words in the book, those pages had been torn out. That whole passage was gone. <laughs> And so I realized, okay, I'm going to have to really dig here. I'm going to have to, this is no like passing fancy. Something's telling me that, that I'm going to have to work for this. And so, um, so I bought that book and I also bought uh, seven story mountain and read it. And for some reason, 
and I, I can only think, Rolf, that it's that I'm a that I'm a writer, but I also teach writing, and I have this kind of sense where I feel like the writer is leaving something out. And as much as I loved that book, I just kept feeling like there's stuff in here that Merton's not telling me. There's something held back, and it had something to do, I think, with with that feeling of humanity. Like there's something missing here. And uh, and I eventually found out uh, through reading a biography that um, that his work was censored. And that there were aspects yeah. of his young life that that he uh, did not write about in that book, and uh, and then I also learned about his journals that he journaled extensively, and that there were seven journals published um, with the stipulation that they be only published uh, 25 years after his death, and I knew that that's where the real Merton would be. That's where I would find that human. Was and it? So, sorry to interrupt. Was it censored by um, his the? The higher ups in his monastery. Yeah, um, and that was just um, the way things went with the Catholic Church. That that there was a series of censors that that your work went through uh, at the monastery and and with Merton probably even higher up as well. That um, that looked at his work, and uh, and yeah, he had issues uh, concerning writing about peace, for example. Like at one point, he was told that it was unbecoming for a, a monk to be writing about peace, if you can believe. <laughs> Huh. Yeah, <laughs> that's crazy. Exactly. You know, that they felt that he was just out there a little too much and, and people and concerned that people would think he was speaking for the Catholic Church. And um, and they didn't want that. Was this during uh, the Vietnam War? Uh, yes. Uh, but, but also even before that, um, he was writing about uh, the nuclear. He was fearing nuclear war. Right. That this was during mm -hmm. uh, the early stages of the Cold War that he was writing about peace. You use a phrase, I think that I have this uh, monk who follows me around and you had friends on social media who says, oh, there's your boy, Thomas Merton. So when did you realize that Thomas Merton had become a big influence in, in your way of thinking and being in the world and thinking about matters of the spirit? Well, probably when that person said on social media, there's your boy. And I was like, what? <laughs> you know, I, I really hadn't, um, because I had just was so used to him being part of my my in my wheelhouse in that way and uh and i didn't realize it was something that would be interesting to people until i was at the festival of faith and writing and i i told the audience look i'm not a scholar i'm not someone who has studied merton in like a theologian it's just i have this monk who follows me around <laughs> and he gives me advice and i you know i i think about the things that he says in his journals and that he's a lot of times he's struggling with the same things I'm struggling with. And so I, I would read him like I'm talking to a friend. It's probably worth talking about who exactly Merton is for, uh, because there's probably even people listening to this podcast are thinking, yeah, I, I don't go to church. I'm not Catholic. Um, yet there, it feels like there might be something universal about him. I mean, I discovered him just traveling through Asia, this guy who had a very unique way of looking at Asia. Uh, you're a black woman from uh, from uh, Ohio, and you, I think you were raised Baptist, and now you're Episcopalian, where Merton is sort of a Quaker-turned-Catholic white guy who, was, who died before any of us were born. Um, mm -hmm. So if he can appeal to you, can he appeal to people who aren't religious? Can he appeal? Where, what's his wheelhouse? Can Buddhist people find him interesting? Well, Buddhist people can definitely find him interesting because he, he studied Buddhism, uh, and which is one of the reasons why he was in Asia. But I, I feel that he is someone who grappled with life, right? And he realized that, that we are all connected. 
uh, that was his his big epiphany. Like he's known for having this epiphany on the corner of Fourth and Walnut in Louisville, Kentucky, where he he realizes that he's not just this monk shut away; that he still is very much a part of the world, and that we are all connected, and that that he should speak about what is going on in the world, and and that he had profound things to say about civil rights, about race, about war and peace. Uh, and about activism and nonviolence. So he he had a way of engaging with the world that was just about the the wholeness of our humanity. and and that really spoke to me because because that that's exactly what I'm always trying to struggle with, how much to be engaged and how much to pull away, you know that 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 this is who we are. Like this is life and and it's worth fighting for. I, I think Merton is the kind of guy that you can read regardless of what your spiritual orientation is, and sort of feel pumped up by that by his human lens on things. And you bring okay. up a, sort of a, a sentiment from Barbara Brown Taylor, just the idea that she hears the phrase, oh, well, I'm spiritual but not religious so much that she could, you know, she had a nickel for every time she heard that, <laughs> she could buy a new car, right? Um, yeah. Yet at the same time, you, you could kind of make an argument for the discipline of an actual religious faith. And so what's your take on this and, and how do you, how does Merton play in your thoughts about this sort of thing? Well, there is the, the, the practice of religion to me helps kind of seal it in your bones to help you access it when you need it, right? The, the practice of praying the Psalms, which he did uh, methodically every single day of his life um, as a monk, uh, the, the whole practice of communion and Eucharist, right, uh, to participate in these sacramental uh, events that, that represent faith in this world, right? So those, those practices can be vital. Uh, but at the same time, there is a door that can be opened into the, the bigger sense. You know, Barbara, you mentioned Barbara. Barbara talks about the language of beholding versus the language of belief. And, but the language of belief kind of represents the, the religion piece, right? That this is what you believe and it's about doctrine and it's about theology, but the language of beholding is what you have actually experienced. It is the, the wow moments of spirit. And, and it is the beholding that often leads to the belief. But, um, but we we skip over that sometimes. We we think that that we only need the the practice to to make ourselves religious or connected when um, when it's really about taking a step back and looking at what is. Uh, and and Merton did a marvelous job of that because he would be just out in the woods, right, just in wonder over the sound of the birds. And, and the cold weather and the changing light in the sky, constantly in a, in a state of awe. So he, he brings that, that poeticism and that spirit to religion, right? And that, to me, is what makes it accessible to all of us. Absolutely. It's that in particular. I'm, you can't see me, but I'm nodding emphatically. That piece of it, the nature bit of it, is so... It's allowable for everybody. Everybody can have that. We're in very rural Kansas, and you know most people would say it's not very attractive, but you can go outside. And I identified a bird the other day, and it just felt 
it felt like I was a ha- I was having a Mertonian moment that I was allowed to see God through something in my everyday, and that's one of the reasons I love Him. Yeah, I have a chapter uh, in the book about nature and, and his interactions with nature, and I've I've already heard from so many people talking about how uh, that chapter speaks to them. I think it's chapter four, like chapter four. Is, is is so my chapter and I that that's that's about me and nature. It's like, yeah, yeah, that's it. I think it's interesting that your connection with Merton was deepened when you found his journals that sort of allowed him to be less censored and more human. I know mm-hmm. I, I forget where I originally read this, but when 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 Merton I somewhere I read that Merton said that a man of faith without doubt is not a man of faith. It was such a relief because doubt has always been a central part of my spiritual way of being in the world. Um so uh what is it about the journals? What What is it about the way he wrote in that unvarnished way that really deepened your understanding of him and his relevance to your way of being in the world? Oh, he became someone, he felt like somebody I already knew. You know, uh, there is there is a particular brand of guy that um, that I feel like I, I know from college. And and if I if I may say so, Rolf, you're 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 kind of that type of guy. <laughs> <laughs> who are just very um, um, am, ambitious and fearless and they, they do their thing out in the world and, and they're, they're kind of brash. And, and I've always liked and admired that kind of guy. And um, even though they can be annoying at times. <laughs> <laughs> and, and Merton is so like that. Like these journals go back to when way before he was a monk, before, when he was a very young man. And you see all of that, like he's he's calling things stupid and he's he's criticizing the way people are looking at paintings. And, and he's just it's he made me laugh. <laughs> he's like, oh, my gosh, I know this guy. You know, he's like my brothers. He's like guys from college. And and so he, he became a friend in that way. And so it was it's it's hard to um, to to take him from that saint-like format when when you see how he's sitting in, in the monastery complaining about the way the choir sounds, right? He, he's just, you know, he has his foibles. And um, and they, they, they were annoying, they were loving. Um, there are times when I just felt like, gosh, this guy just needs a hug. <laughs> and so you you see all of that it's it's all on display in the journals his frustrations his his struggles with faith um how how things would go back and forth for him you know i show in the book how he had that amazing epiphany at fourth and walnut but a year later he's he's probably standing near the very same street corner thinking about how hot and stupid everything it is it was gone <laughs> it was gone it's so yeah. mercurial those those moments that we have and he I, I'm almost done with reading New Seeds of Contemplation, and he talks about, you know, how we try to grasp for the moment that we are feeling the most connected to God. And, and actually, I think something he says about that is like, it's in those moments that we don't feel him that actually he's most there. And I, yeah. I mean, that just pretzels my mind completely, but it makes me feel better that like, I don't always have to be in this euphoric state of interconnectedness with God sometimes a walk is just a walk or whatever exactly and and Kiki it took me a long time to understand that because I used to think um, especially in times of of um, trauma and stress I, I used to think that God wasn't there because I, I could yes. not pray right I felt this this deep void and yeah. I felt 
I can't pray. And it took me a while to realize, and I had this realization when um, I mentioned my friend Katie throughout in, in the book, but um, right when Katie was going into surgery and we were going to find out whether or not she had cancer, I, I remember standing there in the hallway at the hospital and I was feeling that void again mm. and, and thinking um, that that this was one of those moments I can't pray and God isn't here. But then suddenly, and I can't tell you how it came to me, I'm looking out the window and I have this realization that that maybe this this is exactly what it feels like when when God is here. It is this silence. Mm. And and all of my moments of prayer before this, kind of like a flapping of wings, all of my moments of prayer have led me to this moment. And this is where I glide. This is where I soar uh, because because um, I just lean into the the faith, which, you know, the wind currents of faith. So and what will be is what will be, but mm. but I'm supported in this. Thomas was a monk, but one of the most interesting parts of his story as a person was falling in romantic love with a nurse who was taking care of him when he was in the hospital. And I know, Kiki, this sort of resonated with you. Absolutely. We often equate romantic love with sort of a fallen man who is in the clergy. How did this make him more human? What, why is the love that Merton felt for this nurse who took care of him important to his story? Well, uh, first of all, you have to know that when he was a young man, he was he was a notorious womanizer. <laughs> and, and one of the things that he doesn't talk about in Seventh Story Mountain was that he had um, had a child out of wedlock um, and essentially was was sent down from Cambridge uh, where he was at school in England. Um, but when he was in his early 50s, he had a terrible back issue. And and before he had that surgery, and this was in um, early 1966, throughout his journal, it's just dark. He's he's in pain. He's thinking a lot about death. He's he's very, very unhappy. And and he's got that sketch that that um that um, surgery on his calendar and he knows it's coming and he, he prepares very carefully, you know, basically getting his affairs in order because who knows how it's going to turn out. But he goes to the hospital and as you say, he meets this young nurse, he falls in love and his journal totally changes after that. He is giddy. He is, he is just lit up and, even though he he had surgery, right? He had a pretty serious back surgery, so he was probably still in pain. He was probably in re, you know, in having to do um, rehab, but you hear nothing about that because it's all about her, and he is alive again. And I just found that inspiring because it's it's like that the power of love, right? This is how love can change a person. But Rolf, you you ask about his his life. I thought it was fascinating because it, it made him look back at who he was as a young man to to understand this is this is why I I was the way I was then because I didn't trust that someone could love me and and he thoroughly trusted that she loved him and he could see the difference and it, he also it made him realize what he had given up in terms of um when he took that vow of celibacy that he realized that he had given something up that he hadn't even truly grappled with so it it made him just so reflective of himself as as a loving person and i i particularly admire the fact that he wanted to write about it that he found a way to write publicly not about his affair with her but about love 
and, and that wonderful um, essay that he wrote about um, love in the marketplace, right? That sounds so much like what we deal with now with, with online dating. He talks about how um, we've turned it into a thing where we are um, perceiving value of ourselves mm-hmm. and, and whether or not, um, and we approve of ourselves, whether or not we have value in that marketplace that, that we can have someone fall in love with us, right? That, and how that's totally wrong and how it devalues love itself. Absolutely. So, this is something that I found so, so relevant to me because it not only talks about human love, but this aspect of am I worthy enough to be loved is exactly the divine notion of love. That And this is how he kind of showed it in a human way that he was able to really fully enter into this loving relationship with this woman, even though it was kind of doomed from the beginning. But he, mm-hmm. I think he quoted something in Love and Loving, uh, something about we do not fully become human until we give ourselves to another in love and not to get too personal. But this is something that I've only now just discovered in my early 40s with with Rolf that that I can I just see so many different reverberations of Merton's own realization of this human love echoing the divine in my own life. Exactly. Yeah, you have to you have to be able to accept and believe that someone would love you like that. And and that is huge. Um, and I find that that so many people who have issues with love, it all stems from some form of not being able to accept themselves. I think too that there's this commodified idea of love. I mean, love is the subject of so many pop songs, you know, love is the act two plot point of so many movies that I think you can sort of get a cynicism towards love because you don't want that commodified version of love. And, you know, Kiki and I actually met on a dating app, so maybe there was an extent to which we, we had to present each other in a consumable way. Um, and I don't know if it's that we met each other at the right time in life, but somehow I think we got past that. But I think that there is an there is an inability to to accept oneself as a lovable person, but there's also this cynicism that love is being something that's sold to us um, mm-hmm. as a society. So I'm wondering, you know, how Merton's experiences can peel both of those things back a little bit. Well, you know, Merton disliked advertising and packaging. Right, he he would be sitting there reading The New Yorker or something and and complaining about the advertising. Mm-hmm. So I I can only imagine what he would think about the ads these days for for Valentine's Day, for diamonds. Right, that that there is this packaged idea of what love is supposed to look like, and it's and how many relationships have probably fallen apart because it didn't meet this packaged expectation that's been sold to us. Yes, right, that that we have we have um not we've kind of abdicated this this idea of what we want our lives to be instead of looking at being able to look at well here's what this relationship is and here's what it means to me and i don't need x y and z you know i i don't have an engagement ring like i don't wear an engagement ring and and they never made sense to me and i didn't expect my husband to give me one (laughs) so what is what is that you know um but but because, you know, and I remember when I was um, when we gosh, I've been married for our 30th anniversary is coming up. So um, but I remember early on, there were people who were like, oh, where's the ring? Where's the ring? It's like, well, I don't have a ring. I don't need one. That's admirable. I can't I can't say the same, but Rolf's not going to wear one. So there you go. <laughs> 
Well, I think one thing you talk about, Sophroni, in the book is the idea that best love stories are not about couples, but about love. Yeah. Um, what do you mean by that? Yeah, that, that it is about the love itself, right? And and how big it is and how it changes people. And um, I think if I remember correctly, I, I quoted, I talk about Moonstruck, right? And, oh, and yeah. In that movie, he says, you know, love isn't what they told you it would be. Love breaks your heart. It, it makes things messy. And, and this is, and it changes you. And you can't change back. Right. And so so that's what love is. And it doesn't matter that if somebody doesn't end up together, it is about that love that whooshed through the world and, and changed something and changed someone. Right. That that's love that is alive. That's love that means something. Well, Sophronia, you actually went to Kentucky to visit the Trappist Monastery where Merton lived a lot of his life. What was it like for you to visit that monastery in Kentucky and think about this place and these men in the context of the life that Thomas Merton lived? Well, I, I was in an odd brain space when I went. I, I almost didn't go because my, my mother had died just um, just a few weeks before, like the previous month. And I, I realized, well, I should maybe I just need to be in retreat. So even if I can't focus on thinking about the book or working on the book, I should just go and be in silence on this retreat. And so part of me leaned into that, like they give you a little schedule on a little piece of paper. And I figured, okay, I will just, you know, be the good student that I am and just uh, go to all of the prayers, like, you know, Getting, getting up at three in the morning to, to go to that prayer cycle and, and to do all of the prayers and to be very diligent and chanting the Psalms. But, um, but there is something that came over me after I was there for, um, for about a day, day and a half, where I decided to, to go outside and, and I happened to also discover where Merton's um, grave was, and I didn't expect to find, you know, to be allowed to where to go where it was. And I was overcome by this sense of of him, <laughs> and and I just stood there at his grave and I cried, and I realized that that I didn't want to be just there participating in these rituals. I really wished he was there. I wanted to be walking around with him. And I ended up going on a hike that, that took me way further than I expected to because I just started feeling like I was experiencing the grounds the way that he would have. Um, I, I went for a short walk and just heard the silence. Just this amazing, exquisite silence. And I kept following it, like as though it were pulling me along and pulling me into the woods. And I ended up on this knob um, at a certain elevation overlooking the monastery. And and I realized from, from his journals, because he'd written about, you know, over, looking over the monastery and just having this sense of where you are in the world, that, um, that I just felt like like I was the, like I was with him and that he was encouraging me to experience the monastery in a very different way, not not just doing the prayers, but to come experience it the way he had experienced it. That part of the book was really affecting for me. I I felt like I was on your your path with you during that time, and I found myself missing a man I had never 
met before too. Hmm. Well, I know that one thing that was affecting for Kiki on reading that is the idea that you saw his clothes. Did, did you see his coat and his clothing? Not at the Hermitage. Okay. That's at the Thomas Merton Center. Right. Okay. Did okay. you see his jean jacket? Oh, yes. Yeah. This, this morning, I have to tell you, this. Rolf can edit this out if he wants to, but he was putting on these jeans that probably need a wash. And then I had read, I think it's in your book where you quote, is it Henri Nguyen? I, I'm butchering his, where yeah. he, he describes meeting him being in like grubby jeans or something. Yeah, and sloppy jeans. Sloppy jeans. And when I read that, I reread it again this morning and I, I felt chastised for <laughs> saying to Rolf that he need to, needed to change his jeans. He didn't change them, by the way. So he's doing his own part to emulate Thomas Merton right now. Yeah. But that I think the jacket is such a symbol for him, isn't it? It was it was a hand me down from somebody else. It wasn't even his, and yeah. and it was such a like cool hippie sort of thing. But he wasn't doing that to do that. It was so instantly relatable, and those pictures of him in it just it's a portal into like a part of myself that I would love to be more of. I don't need all this stuff. I don't need half the clothes, a fourth of the clothes in my closet. After living in New York, and you talked about how the city was just like, buy this, buy that. I mean, that jacket seems to to me to be such an emblem of needing less and trying to, you know, cull the things that are really don't mean anything in one's life. And you talking about that in your book is just really inspiring. Yeah, to, to pay attention to what we acquire. Do we really need it? Yeah. You know, it's funny, he, there's a point where he is um, at the airport to meet someone and, and he's probably wearing that jacket because he says he looks like a, like an escaped prisoner. <laughs> and and then I've, one of my favorite films is um, The Shawshank Redemption. And I was watching it the other day and I realized all those prisoners in Shawshank Redemption are wearing the same kind of denim jacket. Yeah, yeah. he looks like he could be an extra on the set of The Shawshank Redemption. <laughs> I was like, oh my gosh, Merton was right. You look like a prisoner. Right. With that little beanie. <laughs> yes. Oh, it's so wonderful. Well, you bring in another movie, actually, Silence of the Lambs, in that, you know, I think when Hannibal Lecter, I think, is talking to Clarice Starling, he says, what do we desire? We desire what we see every day. How do we learn to covet? Yeah. Oh, covet. Yeah. Oh, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We learn to covet by what we see every yes. day. Yes. After not being in New York for a while or any big city, I Rolf and I've been in Kansas, so I haven't been in a proper city really for a whole year. And it's, I found myself that and meeting Rolf and being back at home in a different way has really calmed me down. I don't know if you feel the same way about not being in New York all of the time, if you're able to lead a, a life more fitting to your values. Not that you can't, and this is, this is the thing, how does one live in New York or the Londons of the world or the big cities of the world? And and not be swayed by all of the things that you see. Yeah, it's about not being in a state of, a constant state of wanting. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I haven't lived, um, you know, I'm close enough to the city that I, I was there often before the pandemic. You know, I would be there at least once a month or so, but, mm -hmm. but mm -hmm. it is very different. You know, I'm not there every day now. And I notice that, um, that's how I notice that I don't have that same sense of 
of wanting things, of, of passing by those windows and saying, oh, wow, that would look good on me, or I can do, I can wear that. I relate to that so much. That city is so insidious, like not even just the windows, but like what's she wearing or what is he eating or, oh my gosh, that apartment. It's just never ending. Exactly. It's like, oh my gosh, but that's, and, and it's not necessarily, you know, feeling competitive or in a bad way. It's no. just like, oh my gosh, look at the way she's wearing that coat. Isn't that beautiful? Right. <laughs> And, and you're, you're, yeah, it's just, it's overstimulation even, if you yeah. want to call it that. But, um, but I think, Kiki, you ask an interesting question is, how do we live in such spaces? Yeah, we can't all be like Merton and go to Gethsemane, you know, so it, what do we do? Exactly. So I, I do think it's, it has to do with being aware, hmm. right, in a different way, where, where, um, like now I can I can walk down the street and see, wow, I, I, that's a really beautiful coat. Uh, but then to ask myself to, to pay attention to that sense, well, what is it that I'm I'm enjoying about this? And, yeah. and and I don't really need it, but I can stand here and enjoy what that looks like and admire the handiwork and, and then to walk away. Right. I, I think in your book, you reference Merton saying something about or maybe you say that it's about a practice of doing that. It's yes. like the old the old pathways in the brain are just immediately for me anyway, like, I want that, I want that, I want that. And yeah. like, I need to get out of those ruts and start to think about, as you said, like, is it the craft work? Is it the handiwork? Is it the light that's shining over this and creating, you know, like, to treat it more as a remove, as opposed to like filling this, you know, inner gap in my heart that would only be filled by this coat. Exactly. Or to think about what you already have. Yes. You know, I'm, I'm a, I'm a, you know, right now I have a thing. Well, I've always had a thing about jumpsuits, but I recently have acquired a couple of jumpsuits. I knew and I liked her. <laughs> I love jumpsuits. <laughs> right. I don't have any jumpsuits, guys. I'm sorry. Not yet. <laughs> yeah. So even so now if I see a fabulous jumpsuit, I have to remind myself, you know, you have some pretty fabulous jumpsuits already in the closet. Don't need this one. <laughs> Well, I think an interesting thing to, to, to touch on here is the idea of regulating desire in the face of abundance. Because mm -hmm. even during the time of pandemic, we can get online and find all sorts of things that the UPS guy can, can oh bring us. Gosh. And an interesting uh, story you had in your book, Sophronia, is the idea of finding silence in the presence of noise. You had a great analogy, which I'm going to bring up because Kiki and I can relate to it, of watching uh, your dad watching a Cleveland Indians game on the television and you found certain so sorts of silence in the rhythms of that. And of course, one yeah. of Kiki's favorite memories of as a, as a youth is listening to the Kansas city Royals game and, and the, the announcer's voice. And so how did, how do you use that as a metaphor for finding silence in a world of noise and how can we discipline our desire in a world of abundance? Mm. I think um, it's, it's like tuning your ear to it. So I feel like, um, even now, I feel like I hear silence in the same way that I heard that silence as a child, that um, when I hear it, and, and I think this is what happened when I was at Gethsemane, that I recognized that silence, I heard it. And, and just like someone could ring a bell and, and you react to the bell, I heard that silence and it woke me up. I was like, oh, there it is. <laughs> right. And I'm going to I'm I'm gonna like just sit in it and, and listen and I know there's something in there and, and I'm gonna put it on like I could put on a coat. 
But um, but I think it's about uh, training our ear and our whole being to recognizing that that silence when when it's there. Uh, yes, we can cultivate our own silence at at home. Um, you know, turning things off when when we need it. Um, but but I think it's even more fascinating to recognize when the silence appears where you least expect it. I, I like how Merton addresses that in, in talking about music, that silence is a part of music, you know, that, that silence becomes a structured part of how we communicate. Well, silence is a part of theater. We've talked about this before, that like mm. sometimes silences are written into the script and they're just as important as a line. Well, like white space is, is part of being a writer, you know, that if you yeah. have just a, a paragraph that lasts five pages, it's not going to be as effective as if those ideas are broken up and to allow white space into it. Yeah, Merton was a big fan of jazz. Oh, cool. Right? Of course. Yeah. Of course and uh, of course, he was annoyed when he would be in a, um, a, a situation where jazz was playing and the people were talking and not listening to the jazz. <laughs> right? so, so he was because he wanted that kind of silence so he could hear that silence in the, in the music. <laughs> Well, I, I suspect that there wasn't a jazz combo at Gethsemane, <laughs> and, and which just goes yeah. to show that Merton was often out in the world. And I think this is an interesting balance to consider because he had a contemplative life in Kentucky, but he was also involved with um, what in retrospect has been called the civil rights movement. Um, mm -hmm. How is his example one of balancing your duties to yourself and your spiritual centeredness with your duties to... Uh, to the world that, that Jesus preached about, you know, the world that, that also needs uh, the input and advocacy of spirit-filled individuals. Right. So he, of course, he, he wrote about all of these issues and he, he mentored, you know, he had, um, I, I found papers about a correspondence that he had with a black priest named Father August Thompson and helping, um, and, and this this man wrote to Merton with his frustrations about the Catholic Church and, and its treatment of blacks, and uh, and Merton's um, mentoring him on this. Now, one would think that that this is all he can do, right? He can write things, he can write essays, he can write letters, but I found it fascinating that Merton thought a lot about nonviolence, not just in studying it. He studied it. He read about it but he thought a lot about cultivating it within himself hmm. and that, that this was also his contribution um, to the effort of understanding and cultivating nonviolence within himself. That meant um, looking at his, his own thoughts, especially concerning his abbot, who he had, he had a lot of issues with, um, you know, trying to quiet within himself, the, the frustrations and, and, and essentially, um, not harmful thoughts, but you know what what you would call violent thoughts of, of frustration and anger um, against this person, and um, so so that's something that he didn't have to do. But you know, if we are a whole, if we are one, then then that is what you do. You work on this part of yourself, right, so that you can contribute uh, more fruitfully to the whole. He talks about not hating the war makers, but hating the the seed of war within oneself. I read that the other day in New Seeds of Contemplation, and it's so hard to think about that, especially when we're such a divided country. He, he talks about not hating another man's Jesus, but trying to accept, even, even when you use Jesus for you know, both sides of, of 
our political situation, he he advocates, you know, trying to see through that and to love to love that person, even if they might think exactly oppositely of you, which is uh, such a challenge, I think. But it's important, Kiki, because yeah. because we are um, we are not separate. Right. He told uh, Father August, uh, he said, you know, be patient with your bishop. Right. You have to think that this is a man who who is schooled to see the, the, the separation of race and that one is better than the other. And, and this is the way that he is, you know, um, but you have to you can't hate him. You have to protect your own heart. And you have to understand mm-hmm. how to love him, because that's the best chance to to bring about this bishop's conversion. He even used that word conversion. Mm. Right. So so if you get upset at what the other person is doing, even if you don't agree with what they're doing, you lose, number one, the opportunity to connect with that person. And number two, you lose some aspect of your own heart. Yeah. And this was something that was important to me because I I've you know thought a lot about how how do I process the things that go on in this world concerning race without being in a constant state of rage, right? Right, Because it, it makes no sense. But but I have to be able to go to that place of, of looking at this other person's humanity. Um, I, I did this a, a video um, right after the, the um, insurrection at the Capitol on January 6th. Mm. I knew that there were a lot of people angry about the, the people who had stormed the Capitol. But I, I said, you know, we have to think about what is what level of emotion is stirring in there that that made people act this way. You know, I was I specifically spoke about the guy who had his feet up on Nancy Pelosi's desk. I said, you know, to me, this looks like a person who has had no power anywhere else in his life. And this is probably the most powerful he has ever felt. Wow. And I have to feel sorry for that person. I have to feel sorry for whatever is going on in his life that is so empty that he is driven to do this. Sophronia, right. how can we, how can that, how can that become more the norm? Because I struggled with that. Rolf knows this. It was a real, I mean, it was a hard day for so many of us, for the people who were there, of course. But yeah. how, how do we train ourselves to, to respond with compassion instead of just absolute ire? Yeah, I think we have to to try to see the whole of of any person. Yeah, you know where are they coming from? You know, I felt the seeds of this um, back when I had my son. That um, looking at him, looking at his infant face, somehow suddenly I saw in other people, grown adults, I saw their faces mm. as, as babies. Mm. <laughs> right? I saw, oh my gosh, that we were that we are all somebody's baby. Mm. Right. And, and we have all been through things and, and we are all struggling and we are all seeking love. Right. And, and, and how do we we just have to. And this is this is what the purpose of non, the nonviolence movement is, Kiki. It is about exactly that. It's it's about cultivating your own heart and, and, and faith and being in this place where you see that first and not the instinct to violence. Um, this is something I'm, I'm, I'm learning even anew from my son because he, he, he's, um, he's half black, half white, 
but he has that kind of hair where, you know, if it gets really long, right, you know, there's no question that, that, you know, that's black hair. Right. But if his hair is short, you would think that, that he's white. So we, we talk about that and we've talked about, um, you know, he's learning how to drive. What happens during a police stop? And, oh, and we yeah. talked about George Floyd last summer and in all of these the things going on. But you know, here's what here's what he said to me at one point. You first of all, you have to know, we live in Sandy Hook, Connecticut. My son was in the third grade during the shootings, he was in the school that day. Right. And and his, um, his godbrother died. So so that is very much a part of our, our tapestry. He has had police at the door of his school and in his school and parked at the end of his school almost every day of his life since then until he went to high school and, and we're in a different district now. And he said to me, um, and talking about the police and, and violence of the police, he said, mama, but that's not been my experience of the police, mm. right? To, p- police have been protection to him. P- mm. pr- police have been a loving pr- presence. Police have been his friends. And I said to him, you know, Tane, you're absolutely right. And, and that you, you shouldn't lose that that sense that maybe that's going to be the source of his nonviolence if he is ever in a, a precarious situation. Hmm. Right. So maybe behaving from that sense will somehow change a situation. I don't know, but I'm I'm putting that out there and to make him aware of that possibility. Well I think sometimes it's it's easy to objectify kids too, to sort of see kids um as less smart than they are or less perceptive than they are. And I think one big challenge, you think about the insurrection, we live in a clickbait age when I'm sure that the admonition to love your enemy was not something that informed the lives of these people no. who were praying in the chamber of the Senate that they took over. But it also Just, wasn't on the Twitter feed of someone who was like, look what these guys did. Well, you that's know? exactly what I was saying is that people, our understanding of what happened there is also a clickbait understanding. And so our our disgust for those people is also sort of pegged to an objectification sometimes. And so I guess the the admonition to love your enemy, um, which is from the gospel, but is also something that Merton was trying to embrace at a very difficult time in history as pertained to war, as pertained to race. Mm-hmm. Now in the quick paid age, sometimes our understanding is not talking to the policeman who's guarding our school. It's decontextualized, you know. Um, our understanding of people from other um, socioeconomic classes or racial backgrounds is also devoid of context, right? So yeah. um, how do we love our enemy or how do we broaden our humanity at a time when so much of the world is what's buzzing in our pocket or what is scrolling on our screens? We have to get out into the world and, and be with people beyond what's on the screen, right? Um, who was it? Was it Father Edward Beck? I'd, I'd heard um, a, a priest tell a story of um, how he was um, going to, like he was responsible for the food for um, for some homeless people and that he had taken this big cauldron of soup out somewhere and he, he put it out where he knew that the homeless people would be and he put it out there and then got back in his car. And this um, homeless guy came up and, and saw the soup and saw the guy in the car and he knocked it over, just threw it out in the street. And he said to the guy, you don't come in here and put out food like we're like we're dogs, like put out food here to feed us. Mm-hmm. You know, 
come here and talk to us. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, be with us. We we are, you know, we're human beings, mm-hmm. right? So um, so and and this guy was acting out of a fear that he'd been told, oh, you know, be careful, that's a dodgy area of town. Right. So so he's acting out of a context he'd been given and not out of the experience of of addressing someone on a human level. Yeah, that's a that can be a complicated thing. I I worked with the homeless a little bit when I was in my 20s. And by day five, I could see myself at day one by seeing the other new volunteers and sort of in sort of their performative nature of their interactions with the homeless and the homeless had no patience for it all at all. Sometimes it, this is about just going back to the basics, right? Of, you know, maybe we need to understand things as children. Um, I remember, um, gosh, a few months ago, because I recently started a new position and I was in diversity training. And, and of course, it was a Zoom training. And Tane came in and he heard some of what was going on. And he listened to it for a second. And then he's like, Mama, th- this sounds like stuff people should have learned at home when they were kids. But <laughs> I don't say <laughs> now they didn't. Sophroni, <laughs> uh, uh. uh, I'm curious, where should, besides your book, uh, The Seeker and the Monk, where can people start in reading Merton's own words? And what does his example teach us in this ever-deepening 21st century? Well, I think, you know, the book that everyone has always started with, even though, as I said, it felt like there were things missing. That was my my feeling. But um, the Seven Story Mountain is is a deep way to connect with him because it, it is the story of his own spiritual journey. It's not just a autobiography. It is about this young man coming to understand faith and that he did have faith and and how it changed his life. So. So to me, that's that's a spiritual story that uh, any seeker can connect with. If there's one thing to bring home about Merton, uh, for listeners who may not be familiar with him, what what do you reckon they'll find when they start to to dig into his life and as an example and his thoughts? Hmm. Uh, they're going to find someone who, you know, in the same way that that we are, you know, figuring out our our relationship to Thomas Merton that he was always seeking his relationship with God, right? And that he's going, he, he can help you see that it's your relationship with God is, is not always present and it's not always perfect, but, but that as long as you're constantly asking the questions and seeking to, to have that sense of, of grace and to feel God's love, then, then you are on the path and, and that that connection is possible. This has been Deviate with Rolf Potts. More about everything that was just mentioned, including links to Sophronia Scott's book, The Seeker and the Monk, can be found in the show notes at rolfpotts.com deviate. And as always, you can contact me with insights or questions at deviate at rolfpotts.com. This episode was produced by Justin Glow. Cedar Van Tassel does the theme music. Jan Futterman does the show notes. Thanks for listening, and I hope you tune in for future episodes of Deviate with Rolf Potts.